Marini's Media. Totally Football Show, Royal News Special, amid biggest Megan crisis since someone tried tackling Messi. As Harry and his bride step back, we discuss the chilling Old Trafford parallels, where influence of American suits also saw a massive rise in interest, followed by total loss of title ambition. Elsewhere, there's drama at the King Power, and Arsenal have a big meeting at the Palace. Those and other subjects coming up in this Total Football Show in association with Paddy Power. Boom. Here today, Duncan Alexander. Hello. Jack Lang. Hi, James. Tom Williams. Hello, James. Tom, you were with us on Sunday night, of course. A lot of excitement about our new early bird Monday morning specials. Yes, well, I'd hope so too. Good. Excellent. It's a, it's a strange atmosphere in the studio. Hard to talk about football amid, mm. amid the various I'm, crises. I'm reeling, to be honest. Right. Uh, but there has been football, Duncan. Uh, apparently, yeah. Two League Cup semi-final, first legs. And, of course, Monday night's FA Cup drama at the Emirates. What stood out for you, may I ask, Tom Williams? Um, I think Man City's very dominant first half uh, against Manchester United was was probably the most striking feature of the midweek games. Funny, because it came without strikers. Well, yes, indeed. Um, yeah, and it kind of feels a little bit like like Guardiola's got his, his tactical mojo back. He's mm. been sort of making a few tweaks and changes over the last few weeks. And yeah, you know, they looked absolutely sensational against United in that first half. Right. United were a little bit flummoxed by that after their previous success against City. Yes, well, as we mentioned in, in uh, Sunday slash Monday's pod... Um, it, the expectation, I think, was that Guardiola would take steps to make sure that City couldn't be counterattacked in the way that they had been in that fixture a month ago. And on top of that, he comes up with this very innovative strikerless formation where Bernardo Silva and Kevin De Bruyne take it in turns to occupy the, the tip of the attack. And, and United had no answer to it. And it wasn't until Nemanja Matic came on and City took their foot off the pedal, knowing that the game was won, that United got any sort of foothold in the game. Seems very innovative for a manager to to look at the last game between the two teams and and act on what happened and change his approach. I mean, um, he is a genius. So, yeah. uh, um, four false nines make of that what you will, math fans. But Bernardo Silva, one of uh, said figures, opening up the scoring with an absolutely wonderful goal. Love the stat that he scored more goals in his last two games at Old Trafford than Jesse Lingard has managed in his last two seasons. What else, apart from the false nines, what, what else was different about City's approach? Well, it was different compared to the previous games in that what we've seen from City of late is that they've been playing with a back three when one of the fullbacks goes forward on one side, the fullback on the opposite flank tucked into midfield to give them a barrier in front of the, the defence, which basically stops them counter-attacking. Whereas against United, they went back to the back four that they've been using pretty much since the start of the season. And it was that very innovative midfield configuration that changed things. And effectively, when you've got two central midfielders and then two players like Bernardo Silva and De Bruyne kind of playing in a sort of loose central attacking role you can either flood players forward into attack which City did quite effectively or you can push them all into midfield Right, and that's I think that's the reason that United struggled so much is that they were outnumbered every time City had the ball um, and yeah it, it took the introduction of Matic for them to sort of get to grips with that Well they did score a goal uh, Claudio Bravo as usual conceding with his first shot on target which is something he does with extraordinary regularity Consistency is all you want from keepers, um, and he did well. I mean, for Manchester United, it's just 
the same old story, isn't it? A good result, then a few bad results. It's, it's just they're stuck in this kind of endless vicious cycle, really. And um, I guess Robin van Persie would be pleased because Solskjaer didn't look at all happy at the end of the game. Um, but you just wonder, as he said, they're, so, they're sort of in it. They're, in, they're only two goals behind. But, I mean, you know, obviously the City beat Burton 9-0 in the hmm. first leg last season. And I don't give United much more chance than Burton. Really? All it needs is a 2-0 win. And the example of last year's Champions League semi-finals in which two of the most inspirational managers around convinced this oh yeah i see your problem yeah right one of the bits i like most talking of Solskjaer was his slow walk out back to the dugout at the start of the second half and you could almost see his internal battle is kind of you know his default expression is a, a slight grin he's a positive guy but obviously was very much securing himself because he didn't want to be seen to be smiling but at the same time he didn't want to look too doom and gloom and the camera just lingered on him for 20 seconds or so and it was kind of like that weird meme of that woman reacting to something where she's going mm, yeah mm, no yeah like no David one when he's like mm. the one thing that I would say about United and it is very much clutching at straws because they are dreadful and they've got all sorts of off pitch issues but I feel like the players are still like, playing for Solskjaer they don't throw the towel in we've seen them be absolutely terrible um, I was uh, at Bramall Lane when they for that 3-3 draw before Christmas and they were absolutely awful and looked dead and buried and somehow came back from 2-0 down to lead 3-2 ended up drawing 3-3 and you know okay City did take their feet off the pedal in in the second half of that game but th- there is there is something there those young players who who Solskjaer is is giving opportunities uh, to play to they want to play for him um so yeah i mean it is crumbs of comfort but you know there are some crumbs of comfort fans of heritage which might include Ole Gunnar Solskjaer uh, might like to know the last 15 teams to win away from home in the first leg of a league cup semi have all gone on to reach the final. The last team that lost at home and got to the final was Arsenal in 1986-87, which readers may remember was the dramatic uh, turning point of Nick Hornby's fever pitch. So maybe United are going to pull this off in the second leg and there'll be a uh, a United fever pitch. Something to look forward to. The thing is that the 2020 equivalent of Nick Hornby would be some completely insufferable influencer who wouldn't pen a sort of genre-busting novel but would just do, like, I don't know, a a really annoying Instagram account or something. But, you know, here's hoping. For now, the uh, emblematic image of this game, probably Phil Jones stumbling around after Riyad Mahrez. Uh, sites that we might be seeing more frequently on account of uh, Harry Maguire being out with a, a hip injury. One of the many Harrys currently uh, stepping back from the, from the from the action. Yeah. Yeah, that's... I mean, I, is it a big blow? He's not been amazing for United, but he's probably been better than Phil Jones can be as, a, as an interim. And, if you know, I feel sorry for Phil Jones. People forget he was... When United signed him, he was probably the biggest prospect in, in English football. and obviously Dimensionally? People, or, or? Well, both, really. Yeah. Um, but Ferguson obviously made that probably ill-advised quote about he could be the new Duncan Edwards, which has sort of hung around him a bit too much. But he, he was a good player, and he's kind of been turned into this utility man who, who grimaces, and, and now every, you know, I think people focus on what he does more than they would another player because it's Phil Jones. Right, OK. Gavin it, says, if United overcome the... 3-1 deficit against City, would that make them the Pirates of the Carabao? That's quite nice, isn't it? Mm, that is nice. The thing about Maguire's absence is that it will bring more uh, scrutiny onto Victor Lindelof, and I think he is very much, uh, I think he's a talented player, but he's got junior partner written all over him, I think. He really needs someone next to him with a bit of authority. We saw that on the on the Mares goal. He makes well, it's a fairly decent header, but just for a split second, he kind of, uh, his attention strays. And 
in games like this, those margins uh, can really be exploited. And, you know, Mares nips in behind him. He's only probably gone half a metre, a metre, kind of wandered inside, and then he realises. By that point, it's too late. And I think if he is being asked to take on a leadership role with Phil Jones next to him, I think that could spell danger. I see. United then with problems, this just in. Uh, City looking really good. As you say, Tom, manager's got his mojo back. Looks like team have as well. This weekend, they're going to be visiting Aston Villa. You're going along to that game as well, aren't you? What could be a preview of the League Cup final? Yes, indeed. Well, yeah, I think we were all um, probably surprised by how well Aston Villa played at Leicester last night, given the um, the gap between them in the table and, and Leicester's form and, and some of Villa's problems. Um, and Dean Smith has been innovating tactically himself. The last oh, few yeah. games, we've seen them playing with a back three, um, and they did that with success uh, in their last league game at Burnley. In that case, they had Wesley up front on his own. He is obviously now out for the season. Uh, so against Leicester, it was another strikerless system. Uh, you had... Jack Grealish, Anwar El Ghazi and Trezeguet take it in turns to, to occupy the point of the attack. And it worked really well. In, and those two support players in the front three would drop wide in midfield um, when Leicester had the ball, uh, sort of giving them a 5-4-1 effectively. And Leicester found it really hard to, to play through them. And in, ultimately what happened in the end was I think Villa basically just knackered. They, they got this advantage midway through the first half and then just sat back and sort of tried to fend Leicester off. And in the end, they couldn't quite do it. But yeah, still very much in the tie. And uh, I mean, if you look at Villa's fixtures beyond City's visit, they're away at Brighton home to Watford and away at Bournemouth. So, you know, there's there's not much riding on this City game for them. But given that recent improvement um, and, and in spite of the injuries that they've got, I mentioned Wesley, Tom Heaton obviously out for the season, John McGinn out until at least March. Mm-hmm. You know, you do feel like they, they might have found a, a new formula that, that's going to give them a bit of a second wind. You can say that, but I mean, the raw numbers, they had three shots in the, in the whole game, one on target. So, I mean, if they had one, it would have been a bit of an unfair smash and grab. I mean, for me, the big kind of focus was obviously, as a lot of people pointed out, um, Madison v Grealish. And it was a strange one because if you looked at the game, I thought Grealish probably played better, did better stuff. If you look at the numbers, Madison had eight shots in the game. Grealish had no shots and only one key pass. But obviously, Villa were playing defensively for most of the game. So it's like, you know, eye test, stats, or what I prefer, a hunch. Right, what's your hunch say then, Duncan? I would say Grealish. Really? I think Grealish is, is the better player, yeah. Yeah, his key pass, was that was for the yeah. uh, the, the opening goal, no, from uh, Gilbert. Was, was the absence of Ndidi a particularly influential thing for, for Leicester? Yeah, I think so. They looked quite short on intensity in that first half. Um, I think most people probably expected Rodgers to change at half-time, but maybe, well, my expectation at least was that he might dump the, the back three and bring on uh, maybe Harvey Barnes and play a slightly more conventional system. But actually, the, the change he made was to bring Hamza Chowdhury on. And he, I thought, was an excellent addition in the second half. Obviously scored that goal a couple of weeks ago, but his game is really about snapping at ankles. He's decent on the ball as well. But I think when you're playing with so many attacking players and, and Leicester, even when they play a midfield uh, three or a, a five, if you include the wide players, they do, you know, they're flooding that with playmakers, really. Tielemans is is essentially a, a ball playing alongside Madison. And I think you do need someone just to do the dirty work. And Didi is a really underrated player, I think. And Chowdhury proved himself to be a very capable understudy in that second half. Well, Chowdhury obviously came on. He made more passes in the second half than any Villa player did in the whole game. So, I mean, he you know he, he got involved. So. And won the tackle that set up the equaliser for Ihianacho. Mm-hmm. 
also happening since our last show, Monday's FA Cup drama between Arsenal and Leeds. Our thoughts on that next. You're listening to The Totally Football Show in association with Paddy Power. Fourth round got a little clearer Monday night at the Emirates because they had the draw. And then they had the Arsenal Leeds. Leeds were fabulous without actually, you know, scoring. An almost tantric pleasure, I felt. But described by long-term Leeds observers as one of their best performances of the season. That goalkeeper, meanwhile, who was making his debut, he was astonishing. He was, yeah. The tantric thing was interesting. It, it, it brought back to me memories of that old Bielsa Chile side kind of swarming and really exciting, but you always just had the feeling they, they might not get over the line in the end, and so it proved here. But for 30, probably 45 minutes, they were the better team by a mile, and it just showed it didn't look like a match between a Premier League team and a Championship team, and compared to, you know, say, Manchester United's performance, the actual the level of coaching and just the, the what people call automatisms, those those set movements, uh, you know, the link-up play between Ailing and Harrison and Click, those little intricate movements were there all over the pitch for Leeds, dragged Arsenal out of position time and time again. I thought that first half was one of the most enjoyable I've seen for a long time. Brilliant. What conclusions should we draw about Arsenal, given how much they look the, the, the inferior side here? Well, I think they will draw big positives from this because in, you know, in previous incarnations, they would have suffered through that, conceded a couple of goals and then not been able to react. Whereas I think Arteta said that he was pleased that they were able to kind of dig in. He, by all accounts, had a real go at them at half time. Uh, and it was a much improved second half. So I think from their point of view, look, any Premier League team I'm sure would have been to some extent, uh, would have struggled against that Leeds performance right. in the first half. What Arteta said that was interesting was that his players needed to basically face it in person to understand it. He said essentially that no amount of preparation, kind of verbal preparation or, or scouting or videos would have prepared them for that. That's probably a little bit damning, but certainly they got to grips with it. Right. Are a lot of Premier League sides going to be going through that next season, do you think, Jack? I would think so, yeah. Mm. All right, then. Unless we have a classic late-season Bielsa collapse. Right. Or a, a classic Bielsa walkout on the eve of next season. Yes, or that. Mm. For now, he and his bucket very much ensconced atop the championship, but not in the fourth round of the FA Cup draw, which uh, <laughs> highlights for you, Duncan. Was there anything that leapt out? Well... For me, Wickham, who I support, got knocked out by Tranmere, and right. you often follow the team that knocked you out. See, and, and so Tranmere obviously played Watford. That would have been quite a good game, like local yeah. Watford Wickham. And then they've now got the possibility of playing Manchester United in the fourth round. So. Right, Tranmere, who were one of the stories of of, of the mm, third round, came from three 0 down. Yeah, may well prove to be in the next one as well. What else? There's West Ham, West Brom, Tom. Yeah, both got West in their name. So right, that's the angle. That's something. <laughs> that's the angle. Also, Slavon Have Bilic. you ever noticed on that point, actually, yeah. just that there's a lot of English teams with West in the name. Yes. And there's a lot of Scottish teams with East in the name, but the, that seems to be a thing. There's no kind of mixture. Yeah. So there's no English sides with East in their name. Probably really low down there, but in you know major sides, there's no East English teams, there's no West Scottish teams. Right. Even a team that you might think might be East, like West Ham, are, are West. Mm. Ham, which mm. was confused to me. That's that's a the compass, curiosity. What a, what a crazy world it is. Mm. All right. Uh, Arsenal got Bournemouth in the fourth round of the FA Cup, which is curious because that's where we're heading next. 
Everyone remembers that time you've had that peach of an accumulator looking good only for... Oh, and the keeper's let it slip through his legs in the 94th minute. Or the right back has to pull on the gloves and face a penalty. Or Man United have again conceded a late equaliser. But with Paddy Power's Acker Cracker, you get a free bet if one leg of your fourfold plus Acker lets you down on all football matches and all markets. Paddy Power. Max free bet £10. Minimum odds of 1 to 5 on each leg. Online exclusive. Exclude shop bets. T's and C's apply. 18 plus. BeCumbleAware.org. On Spotify, smart speaker and podcast platforms everywhere, this is the Totally Football Show from Muddy Knees Media. Premier League returns this weekend, listener. Arguably the biggest game. Bournemouth Watford. That's right. Sunday, 2 o'clock. It is 18th against 19th. There is only one point between them because the Cherries are now down in the bottom three. They're like the kind of white-collar embezzlers there and now in the big house facing a prison yard scrap with some hardened lags. Have they bought a shiv? That's the question. Have they got one? We'll find out. I mean, this this next run of games will probably define Bournemouth's season. One win and eight defeats in the last 10 league games. Uh, and the next four, Watford at home, Norwich away, Brighton at home, and then Villa at home. So you think if they don't get at least a couple, if not three wins out of that, they're probably going to be in big trouble. The Watford, wow. as we know, who've had this Nigel Pearson bounce, mm. um, uh, despite that slightly surprising collapse against Tranmere in, in the Cup. So, yeah, it, it kind of feels like this is this is where Bournemouth season will be decided. I reckon if you ran into Nigel Pearson, you would bounce as well. Right. Yeah, quite some distance. On the eve of a massive game then for the Cherries, uh, let's speak to a man who's been following them closely to hear what on earth's going on there. Michael Dunn, author of Dean Court Days, the definitive story of Harry Redknapp's sojourn at Dean Court. And a podcaster and Bournemouth fan joins us now. Michael, why have the cherries become cherry ball? Yeah, it's been an awful run. I think the worst we've had in the Premier League. Um, well, Eddie can justifiably point to the injuries. We have had a crippling injury list. The likes of Nathan Ake, David Brooks has been out all season. He's a real um, game changer for us. And a lot of other players like Josh King and Adam Smith have been out at different stages of the season and he's never really been able to name the same 11 from one game to another that he's always had to make changes due to the injuries we just haven't had a settled side the thing is when we have and any team has a bad run of results like this there's always going to be rumours of internal strife and there are small signs of that there's been an ongoing problem with Ryan Fraser's contract and he just hasn't been the same player as last year Jordan Ives been dumped out of the squad as a result of a the car crash he had that he's ended up in court for. But there's been nothing major that's come out of the club to suggest that Eddie's lost the dressing room. And I think he has the backing, certainly of the fans and hopefully of most of the players. And I don't think anybody would like him to move on. I think we either trust him to turn it around or even if we go down, I think we'd like him to stay because he knows how to get the club promoted. So there's nothing in this set of results or there's nothing you can imagine that would see the Bournemouth fans turning on Eddie Howe? I don't I think so. He's got an awful lot in the bank with the Bournemouth fans. And also, you look at other clubs like Charles when they had Alan Kirbishley and they got a bit tired of him and his style of football and they got rid of him and they just sank like a stone. We're in such a, an elevated position. Nobody else could pull this off with us. If he goes, which he will do sooner or later, but we will just go downhill straight away. There isn't anybody. He's irreplaceable in, in the eyes of the Bournemouth fans despite the bad run. All right. Michael, you've got a season-defining run of fixtures coming up, starting off, as you mentioned, with Watford, then Norwich, Brighton, Aston Villa. Is there nothing that you'd like Eddie Howe to change, though? Is there nothing that you, you feel he could be doing better as you go into this crucial set of fixtures? Yeah, we've gone into 
our shells. We don't go forward fast enough. There's too many sideways and backwards passes. Everything breaks down and we don't create enough. Our shots on goal statistics have plummeted. And I think the fans would like to see the ball going forward faster. We're just too timid in our play. And I think that is the thing the fans would most like to see change in the games coming up against Watford. How optimistic are you, Michael, that you're going to do it? I wouldn't say I'm entirely optimistic. Uh, Eddie has pulled us out of the fire many times before. We've had bad runs in the Premier League. And then everybody knows the story of what he did for us when we were almost going out of existence and started on minus 17 points on the season he took over. But I think it's touch and go this year. Our time could be up. I hope it isn't, but we'll have to wait and see. Michael Dunn there, author of Dean Court Days. Watford, arduous opponents. And you reckon there's some beef here, Duncan? Yeah, they obviously they came up together from the championship. Uh, Watford led the league for a lot of the season. Bournemouth pipped them to the title. On the on the on the last day, um, Watford were very unhappy that season with certain antics from Bournemouth. Bournemouth won a lot of penalties that season, um, so we know this is going to be a big game. But this, I think, that would only add more spice to it. Um, right. And Bournemouth, obviously, the only team ever to play in the English top flight and not get relegated from it. That record is under threat. What spices would you add to beef normally? Uh, pepper, mm. Mm. paprika, yeah. Strong choices. Jack, uh, Watford may be calling on their new Brazilian signing, João Pedro. What can you tell us about him? Uh, he's very promising. He scored a cluster of goals after breaking into the Fluminense first team as a teenager, including one absolutely spectacular overhead kick, which really uh, grabbed people's attention. But since that first uh, salvo, I suppose, he's he dropped off the radar mm. slightly. He, he wasn't in the Fluminense first team uh, by the end of the season it's a, a team that was near the bottom of the Brazilian league so it's not like uh, we're not talking about a a Neymar figure who had accumulated uh, loads and loads of goals in his domestic league It's he's a prospect definitely he's a very sharp finisher and I think there's a lot of potential there but I wouldn't be backing him to to make a massive impact in the second half of the season I think it will be uh, next season before we see uh, what he can do Watford will have Roberto Pereira available though after his red card for kicking out against Tranmere was overturned by the FA this is curious because it wasn't actually overturned by VAR in game so not sure what that means a lot of people have said before, well, there's no point appealing because you've already had your appeal with VAR, but apparently they, they have a mind of their own, the uh, appeals board. But what else is going on this weekend? Uh, quite a lot in relegation terms. Everyone from 11th place Everton down is within five points of the drop. Uh, the other team currently in the bottom three, Norwich, uh, have a trip to Old Trafford. How many times, Tom, have they won there in the last three decades? Uh, once. That's true. When was it? When they were last up in yeah. the Prem, I think. Amazing. Yeah. yeah. Tom, that's an outstanding <laughs> So knowledge. they're one for one, if you like. And yeah. also, yeah. United have lost three of the last five Premier League games against teams in the relegation zone. Right. It used to be a hard game, less so now. Right. It's exactly the kind of opponent that, that seems to befuddle Solskjaer. Mm. Mm. I mean, obviously United played quite well in the reverse fixture this season, Rashford. Uh, missed a penalty, but was good overall. Oh, there were a couple. That was the penalty game, wasn't it? Mm. When Tim Krul was, you got to be cruel everything. to be kind. But um, yeah, I think this has got another banana skin written all over it. Really? Mm-hmm. You're backing Norwich on this? Yeah, Norwich. I think they're not as bad as as the results would suggest. And you know, Todd Cantwell's playing quite well. I think I think they can pull something off. Right. This. 
Because they are be, looking a bit adrift, Norwich. Well, they're I think certainly at risk of being on, yeah, cut this adrift. Is the, they're on the cusp of being adrift. This okay. is num- you wouldn't say historically, you know, away to Manchester United is a must-win game. But I think, given the circumstances, it is, and it's possible they can do it. Wow! Would Daniel that be Parker an- has already said it will be a sensation if Norwich avoid relegation, which is not exactly fighting talk, but we'll give him the benefit of the doubt. No, I think that I, I, I see what he's saying there. Well, you really like Daniel Farker. I, 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 every time I see him on the TV, I find myself thinking, I, I hope everything is going to be okay for him. What do you like about him? I think it's his voice. He's a very nice, he's quite a softly spoken voice. Mm. He's very articulate. Yeah, he looks fierce. He sort he's of exudes that. like personal warmth. Like physically, he's quite, he's quite an imposing guy, but mm. actually, he's got quite a gentle voice and just seems. Yeah. What well, I nice. find curious about him is that I'm generally not, um, I don't warm to people who still have the same haircut they had when they were young. Obviously, I've got my own issues about that. (laughs) And that's one of my concerns with Solskjaer. He just doesn't convince me because he's still got this kind of 13-year-old truant. What kind of hair would you like to see Solskjaer have? Something a bit edgy. He needs to do something a little bit more grown up with it. Whereas your man Farker, I believe, has been rocking that look for for decades now, but is entirely comfortable with it. He looks a bit like a villain in a PlayStation 3 game, I'd say. He looks like a new metal roadie. Yeah. Okay. All valid options. Brighton are at Everton. Mm. Duncan. Yeah, this is going to be, I'm sure a lot of people are already ahead of me here, but it's the first ever Premier League meeting between two managers with OTT in their surnames um, Mm. or in their names. So, I mean, there's only been five Ancelotti, uh, Graham Potter, obviously, and then the other three are Scott Parker, obviously in his first name, Brian McDermott, and Terry McDermott, the McDermott twins. Um, Let's hope the game is OTT. Yeah, for sure. Chelsea up against Burnley. What are the chances of an upset here? Chelsea, after all, have lost Jack three of their last four fixtures at the bridge, while Sean Dyche has been there four times as Burnley manager, and he's only lost once. What do you think? I think Burnley are in a sticky spot. You look at the other teams at the bottom, and most of them seem to have some kind of upward momentum. Maybe Bournemouth are the other the other exception but they've got good fixtures whereas Burnley's fixtures are really really take a turn for the worst now it's Chelsea Leicester Man United Arsenal so feasibly this is going to be a fairly sticky period for them I think and they're not playing very well the goals have dried up Uh, Ashley Barnes who kind of had that weird run when he was seemed to be scoring and creating chances all the time at the end of last season at the start of this that has completely disappeared and yeah, they they just look a little bit short on ideas, and the kind of the classic dice grit will only get you so far if you're not scoring. Well, on that point, since December the twentieth, Burnley have had three shots on target in the Premier League, which in that period is somehow less than Joe Linton and Paul Pogba. Um, so that is not a team that is uh, attacking with a plum. Right. Um, and obviously, we've mentioned Chelsea's poor home record recently, but they haven't lost three home games in a row since 1994. So, you know, since the day to day came out. Um, oh. So that is quite a long time. Chelsea, who are a model of inconsistency, which is something that Frank Lampard has complained quite a lot about in recent weeks. You just can't tell which Chelsea you're going to get. They've not had the same consecutive result in all competitions since the end of October. They had that run of seven straight wins when everything looked like it was you know, going in the right direction. And since then, they've gone lost one, drawn one, lost, drawn, lost one, lost one, lost one, lost one, drawn one. I mean, I could go on. I could go on, but sadly, that is where we are now All in right. the fixture list. It's mm-hmm. interesting that they're being linked with, with the striker, Moussa Dembele of, of Lyon, because to me, that doesn't seem like it would be anywhere near 
the priority for them. I mean, uh, fullbacks would jump out at me, especially left back, given that uh, Lampard doesn't seem to have a great deal of faith in either Emerson or or Marcus Alonso. And it's looking like Leon aren't going to do business. Maybe Tom can shed some light, but it's a tricky situation when you've got a striker who you obviously want to put faith in, in Tammy Abraham. And, you know, if you're paying top dollar for for someone like Dembele, he's going to want to play, developing a, a kind of a small-time Harry Kane replacement problem, maybe. Yeah, I mean, one of, I mean, Lyon, I don't think would have been interested in selling Dembele anyway, but they've lost Memphis Depay, Jeff and Adelaide, two of their most important attacking players to ACL injuries in the space of the last month. They're actually looking to recruit more attacking players. Um, John Michel Olas, the Lyon president, was asked about um, uh, the interest in Dembele yesterday and was very, you know, conclusive and said, no, he's not going anywhere. Oh, you mentioned Joe Linton, Duncan, who may or may not be featuring in uh, Newcastle visit to Wolves. But, uh, Jack, have you been surprised? What's he got, one goal all season? Are you surprised? I call him Joe Linton, as you pointed out. It's Joe Wellington. It is. Yeah. Uh, and I thought when Jack yeah. said that on the pod, that would be enough for the message to get through. But enough. I still hear a lot of Joe Linton on, you know, much of the day. And, and someone said that that's not how you say it. Mm. So. I'm, I'm constantly surprised by how little influence I have over the, the British media landscape. But have I been surprised by how poorly he's done? Yeah, a little bit. He... He wasn't a big name in Brazil by any means. What what I had seen of him, I saw uh, for Hoffenheim. Right. And I thought he was, I thought he was busy, uh, quite uh, quite adept at making things happen. Not necessarily skillful, but he seemed to always be uh, in the thick of it, as right. it were. Whereas, whereas at Newcastle, yeah, I, I suppose perhaps because there aren't always uh, the attacking players around him and. People look at him and see he's bulky and maybe they saw in him a, a kind of Rondon replacement, whereas Rondon replacement. Yeah, yeah, oftentimes in Germany he'd play from wide. And yeah. I think he's but even he, there he never scored more than eight goals in a season, did he? True, but you know, five would be would be a decent return <laughs> of the night, wouldn't it? Yeah, fair. Uh, all right. Anyway, big game that for uh, Newcastle. Oh, Duncan. Yeah, I was just going to say Newcastle. I mean, Jack mentioned Burnley and Bournemouth as teams who look like they're on a downward trajectory. I think Newcastle also look. Um, I mean, their numbers all season have been really poor in terms mm. of like XG and XG conceded, but they've somehow pulled off some wins to get them into mid-table. But it now looks like um, it's you know the chickens are coming home to roost are a they little bit. Lost yeah. four of the last five matches. Yeah, yeah. but Ooh. their injury picture looks to be improving ah. they've been without an awful lot of um, important players in recent weeks some of whom are still out Fabian Shah, uh, Javi Manquillo and John Joe Shelby but a whole host of others came back to training this week I think Jamala Sellers and, and Anasa Maxima who they've really missed while he's been out are both close to a return as well so yeah obviously concerning recent form three straight defeats in the league held by Rochdale in, in League One but potentially like the end of the tunnel for Wolves, obviously, Adama Traore has been linked with quite a few clubs this week. NFL clubs? Yeah. Apparently, um, yeah. Well, he says, you say that. No, I mean, actually, that's what he said. Well, he, yeah, but he has progressed the ball this season in terms of running with the ball right. more than any other Premier League player. 3.8 kilometres, which, if you're talking cross-sport fun, mm. is the same length as the swim bit of an Ironman. So, makes you think. Certainly does. Uh, similarly thought-provoking is West Ham's visit to Sheffield United. On, on Friday, my thought in this one being, uh, can David Moyes' winning run survive a trip to Bramall Lane? I guess we'll find out. 
uh, Friday. Two wins out of two, of course, but they have been against <laughs> Bournemouth and Gillingham. Well, and obviously, we talked about beef earlier with oh, yeah. Bournemouth Watford. This game has plenty oh, of beef. Oh, my goodness. Carlos Tevez yeah, shape. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and I think the last time, they, one of the times they played uh, in the League Cup, Sam Allardyce was West Ham manager, and he came out with one of my favourite Allardyce quotes. It was, um, uh, it's about me making sure that the fans go home happy because they feel aggrieved about what Sheffield United did, which seems a, an outlandish stance <laughs> from Allardyce, given that it was essentially West Ham who uh, sort of semi-cheated and had to pay a fine. So, big Sam at his finest. Remarkable. Okay, uh, Arsenal are at Crystal Palace, which is the reverse of that fixture that saw Granit Xhaka uh, leaving the field in controversial circumstances and uh, abandoning the armband and all that. Good news for Arsenal here is that uh, Luka Milovojevic is suspended because he scored three in his last three. Yeah, he against. scored against them, yeah. obviously in the reverse fixture, um, as did Jordan Ayew. No Palace player has scored home and away against Arsenal uh, in a league season since, and I didn't know this player John Craven in 1971-72 not that John Craven although I imagine the actual John Craven would be very excited about the eagle that flies up and down right. you don't get them on Countryfile do you John right you see you think of Countryfile I think of Newsround I thought Newsround yeah yeah there's fewer eagle based well yeah fair uh, Saints are at Leicester oh my word Saints against Leicester what a moment a record that has stood for decades Jamie Vardy can add Leicester's name to it here he comes he scores and Leicester City have nine and have equaled Manchester United's record for the biggest ever Premier League win memories there that still burn still etched in the psyche of Southampton fans mind you it was only a couple of months ago but a 9-0 defeat at home to the Foxes the joint biggest defeat in Premier League history when Leicester went to uh, St Mary's. When was that? October. Now, at the time... Biggest away win in top flight history as well. Right, OK. At the time, many wondered if uh, Southampton manager Ralph Hasenhutl could survive. But remarkably, as they prepare to meet again, not only is he still there, but he's turned things around. How, Jack? What's he done? Well, I think that defeat actually acted as a, a springboard. Firstly, it, it reinforced the club's faith in him, which I think, I mean, obviously, when you lose 9-0, there is a question mark about whether a manager can survive that. The fact that they backed him, backed the project, I think it was a, a very strong signal and I think gave him probably increased uh, status at the club. I was in Southampton over over Christmas and New Year, saw their last two Premier League matches against Palace and Tottenham and was very impressed, really. After the 9-0, he ditched the back three, didn't work, and kind of, to some extent, turned towards uh, experience. So, you know, Jan Valery, for example, paid the price and hasn't really played since, but he seems to have stumbled across a, a system that works well no matter who populates it. So it's kind of a 4-4-2, essentially, quite quite old school in that way, but the pressing is working really well. Obviously, it helps when you have a striker who is turning basically any half chance into a goal, which is what Danny Ings is doing, and he is actually sniffing out a lot of his goals himself. It doesn't seem to need much uh, build-up play. And then that just means that the energy and the kind of uh, defensive solidity goes a lot further. What I like about them is is the midfield too, Hoiberg and Ward Prowse. They're neither of them particularly showy, but they 
bring a real edge to the team, uh, which is missing in, in a few Premier League midfields, I think. And just the, the consistency of selection there, those two really bring out the best in each other. They, I mean, Ward-Prowse is, a, I think, on the slight hot, nasty little fellow. Well, yeah, he. I never thought of him like that until last season, remember when Wilf Sahar got sent off yeah. down at St Mary's and he basically was applauding the crowd and all sorts when that happened. Yeah, he's great. And he, Against Tottenham, there are a couple of really nasty little challenges. But that, I think, I mean, it's maybe a simplification, but when you're near the bottom of the table, a little bit of a needle can actually go a long way, right. particularly when it comes to bringing the crowd on side. And that, is, that has been a, a slight bubbling complaint at Southampton is that the the fans don't get the team going really with their right. noise but Hasn Huddle has spoken about that recently and yeah they really look to be on an upward trajectory yeah Saints not that near the bottom of the table anymore they're up in 12th level with Everton and Newcastle on 25 points five clear of the drop just to back what Jack was saying there with with numbers raw numbers Southampton are only behind Liverpool and City in terms of possession one in the final third the season mm. they're second in press sequences and they're fourth in shot ending high turnover so winning the ball high up and then having a shot so you know everything suggests they're going to be fine I think did you enjoy uh, Duncan inserting his digits into your kind of body of uh... yes I always do good <laughs> couple of random tweets for you. Here's Patrick Avenel. A lot of L's on the end of his name. Do you think pop stars ask themselves who scored the winning goal last time they had a number one hit? I like that. I like that as well. Yeah. Uh, Mr. Podge, meanwhile, asks, how long will this year's top four stay the top four? Or are those days of consistency gone and will it be a change every year? What do you think, Tom Williams? Um, I think I think one issue with that is that Leicester in much the same way as they did in 2016 in, in having this slightly unexpected success, um, you know, being up where they are on the table, second place behind Liverpool, that's only likely to provoke the other big clubs into spending even more money. Um, now, I guess if you were looking for, for you know, for um, reason to believe that, that teams like United and Spurs and, and Arsenal might, might struggle to get back into the top four, you'd look at the fact that, you know, United have clearly got a manager who's probably not up to the job. The Mourinho bounce lasted... Um, the space of about a fortnight at Spurs and, and Arsenal have got a lot of rebuilding to do. So I think if you're a Leicester fan and you know, assuming they finish in the top four of the season as they do, they would probably go into next season confident of repeating the trick. But I think in time, those clubs will come back. I mean, mm. I don't think there's any chance of this top four, particularly as the fourth team in that um, quartet is Chelsea who are, as we've already discussed, uh, you know, a very, very patchy team. I don't think there's anything particularly durable about them uh, as a four. But yeah, certainly Leicester, you know, I see no reason why they can't for the next couple of seasons be uh, you know, consistent top well, four I mean, finishers. I guess the counter to that is, as John Craven would point out as well, the vultures may circle in and pick off their best players, as they did after 2015-16 in terms of Riyad Mahrez. Well, it took a couple of seasons. But um, I mean, James Madison looks likely to, to move on a few others as well so yeah I mean we've, it's a very unusual situation in the last couple of seasons where the top six has been the same um, in consecutive seasons that hardly ever happens um, I think I think probably of the teams that, big teams that are struggling I think possibly Arsenal may be best place to better place than Spurs and United to, to break back in next season uh, We'll be talking a little bit more about Jose Mourinho and his bounce uh, a bit later on because they're hosting Liverpool this weekend that's a big game Up next though Daniele Didossi You're listening to The Totally Football Show with James Richardson. 
cileno, pallone sul secondo palo, saltano in molti, poi il colpo di testa di Bordisso, attenzione rete, De Rossi, la Roma in vantaggio, ha segnato la Roma, ha segnato Daniele De Rossi, ha segnato il capitano. Right, Daniele De Rossi announcing his retirement this week in Buenos Aires, Jack. Yes, a, a short and not entirely successful stint at Boca Juniors. Right. Uh, obviously, I think there was a lot of excitement when he moved there, regarded as a, a one-club man for the vast majority of his career, and Argentina, a, a left-field choice for right. for an Italian player. Uh, quite a nice choice. Obviously, Boca Juniors, uh, it, it's a name and it's an institution that has a, a kind of global appeal for all the players I mean, it's a, associate it's, with them. It's a hipster choice, if I may use that expression, and it kind of fits with... De Rossi, who, but this is one thing that emerged when we were talking about his retirement, the fact that he's regarded as a bit of a hatchet man in you know many less illuminated circles. But certainly for me, I mean, although he is a, a masterful tackler and a, and a physical and uncompromising opponent, uh, he he clearly has some very interesting choices. You can see that from his beard, from his tattoos, from you know, from his decision to head off to Buenos Aires. Yeah, I think so. I think when you're you know when you have the status that he had. Or still has really at Roma. I think it was between retirement and then going outside Europe. I think any any club on his CV within Europe, I, I would I would imagine, would have slightly tarnished the the commitment to Roma. Maybe right. even you know even in England or or Spain or something. The Lampard it's, to Man City. Yeah, I th- I, I think so. And the fact that he's he's gone to another continent, I think, preserves that, which is nice. There is a, a slight hatchet man edge to him, you right. know. With, the Brian McBride elbow. You had to bring that up. Obviously. Yeah. And, well, I was I was digging through my memory as well, and I, I had in mind uh, some horror tackle of his, and I, I did manage to find it on on Chiellini oh, right. in a Juve game. And it's it's one of the worst challenges that I've seen. <laughs> yeah, he, he jumps into it from about six or seven metres away. Right. Uh, but so, it is a Juve game. Yeah, fair. <laughs> he also said quite recently, um, today when I see younger players doing Instagram live in the dressing room, I would like to hit them with a baseball bat in the mouth. <laughs> yes. Which, for me, is a violent act. Some people may, you know. Not, but he, not was for quite, James. he was sort of unashamedly old school. And, and something I, I always quite liked about De Rossi was his, his clear admiration for, for English football. He used to speak about, you know, how much he enjoyed watching Roy Keane and Stephen Gerrard and how much he loved English stadiums. Curiously, he was once asked to name his three favourite cities in the world, and one of them was Glasgow. Um, so, you know, a big, okay, not Anglophile, but whatever. what's the British equivalent of an Anglophile? Britophile. A Britophile. Um and yeah, someone you know who is who is quite who is quite old school. Uh, and I think that the decision to go to Boca plays into that. You know, you might expect that a player in his position would take the cash of a move to China or Qatar or whatever. But you know, the fact that he wanted to fulfil this ambition of playing at the Bombonera, even if he only played a handful of matches, I mm. think that is a, is a testament to the fact that he was someone who was sort of guided by emotion quite a lot in his career, rather than you know by making you know more kind of business minded decisions perhaps. I mean, compare that to to Chavi, who you know mm, has, right. has I think really undermined his his cool kid credentials right. in the last three or four years. Shredded his legacy. Well, to some extent, certainly, certainly when it comes to uh, the one pass he should shimming. have made. <laughs> hey, <laughs> just on De Rossi from a from a numbers point of view, yeah. My favourite memory was is he made seventy four passes against England in Euro twenty twelve, which 
was all right. It doesn't sound amazing. Yeah. It's as many passes as England made in the whole of extra time in that game. So okay. possibly says more about Roy Hodgson's England than it does about uh, De Rossi. Well, he's second most uh, present Roma player ever behind Totti. 18 seasons there. In the national side as well, he is, I think he's fourth most capped Italian player, which is pretty impressive, behind uh, Buffon, Cannavaro and Maldini. He's also uh, the midfielder with the most goals for Italy, which is surprising because, he, you know, the, the Brian McBride, etc., uh, overshadows the fact that he was technically a really gifted player, a brilliant distributor of the ball, could score, uh, and a, a, a huge character. Well, he stood up for the sort of fans as well, I think, mm. quite a lot. Um, I mean, a good friend of mine is a, is a big Roma fan. He said even some of the Lazio ultras kind of begrudgingly accepted De Rossi in the way they wouldn't have done with Totti, just because yeah. he was a kind of man of the people kind of figure. So Plus, of course, he's got the mark of the Teletubbies on him, you know, famously bearing a tattoo of Jack coming to you on this. Was it uh, Ipsy? Ipsy? No. Tinky Winky? Was it? La La Poe. One of them. The big four. Yeah. He has a lot of tattoos, a brilliant one of a sliding tackle, but also a Teletubby for you know one of his girls. I'm, I'm going to debate that the one of the sliding tackle is brilliant. Do you not like it's it? It's one of the ugliest things I've ever seen. Have you not seen <laughs> <laughs> It's up there with Edison's tattoo. Yeah, I was going to mention Edison, but fair. Yeah, um, and I agree with Jack, actually, on the, the famous tattoo. Ha ha, I'll break your legs. I mean, it's, it's old school, isn't it? But It's not, not breaking a leg, it's a sliding tackle. Well, it's it's a warning. Also. It's a warning sign. Yeah. And on the theme of uh, Italian footballers with surprising um, uh, children's TV themed tattoos, shouldn't forget Alberto Giladino, of course, who's got Peppa Pig yeah. sort of kind of near his left armpit, just mm. like at the top of his arm. Yeah. So maybe it's a thing in Italy. I don't know. Well, Peppa Pig is extraordinarily popular in Italy. Um, What's Peppa Pig called in, in Italian? Well, por- porchetta would be the, uh, the the direct equivalent, the spiced. The spiced pig. No, pig with. Oh right, yeah. It's with really, really popular. Porchetta's delicious, mm. by the way. Beyond everything else, one reason why De Rossi was was such a a cherished figure at Roma and will always remain so is the fact that he is homegrown. He's from Ostia, and he came as part of that dynasty of homegrown midfielders that the Gialarossi had. Gialarossi and and Italy as well. You had Giannini, kind of through the late eighties into the nineties, the nineteen ninety World Cup. Uh, Il Principe, and then you had Totti coming over and, and, and taking over that mantle within his timeline. Then you had De Rossi, who was seen as very much a continuation of that dynasty, uh, which nowadays has Jack Robwell as its most likely uh, continuation, although Roma sadly declined to pick up his contract. Yeah, De Rossi's a big fan, apparently, of the uh, Netflix series Subura, Blood oh, yeah. on Rome, which apparently is quite good. I haven't seen it, but might check it out on De Rossi's recommendation. It, okay. is, is, it sounds perfect, to be honest. What other things does De Rossi like? Big fan of Coldplay and Mumford and & Sons. Right. No one's perfect, Tom. No one's perfect. Uniquely uh, among footballers. Right. Xavi has just moved ahead again in the corners <laughs> rankings. <laughs> uh, next up, let's round off our Premier League previews with Liverpool at Tottenham. Saturday, Liverpool are at Tottenham. Could Moo be the one to stop him? I mean, he has got a history of upsetting Liverpool's mm-hmm. apple cart. Yeah. Um, famously, the, the slip, Stephen Gerrard, in 2014. But that's he, true. That's, that was a different Moo. This is a different Liverpool. Um, he hasn't got a very good record against Jurgen Klopp. Um, Tottenham don't look very good. They're missing Harry Kane. Right. Some people think that... Oh, when Harry Kane doesn't play, Spurs are better, but the numbers right. don't back that up. Do they not, Duncan? 
Is that no. an urban myth? It is an urban myth. They've won two of their last 12, one of their last six. They've only scored four of their last 80 shots uh, in the last six games when they've played without Harry Kane. So I would say they're better off with So that. they're not good numbers, but how do those numbers compare to them with Kane? Well, they're better with Kane. Better, yeah. okay. Also Spurs, one clean sheet in 12 games since Mourinho came in, which is not the sort of defensive form that you want to be able to depend on when you're about to go and play against Salah, Mane and Firmino and all right. the rest. Liverpool, meanwhile, seeking a 12th consecutive league win, rested practically their entire first 11 for that win over Everton in the Cup. Right. I mean, interestingly, this fixture a couple of years ago was essentially the game that set Liverpool off on this incredible kind of period. They lost 4-1 at Wembley to Spurs. Um, Dejan Lovren. Dejan Lovren, the horror show, now. yeah. Basically, Klopp kind of came out and said, we need a central defender. They obviously tried to buy Van Dijk in the summer. That came off. They then bought Alisson the following summer. Uh, it's worked out all right, I think, to fair to say. All right, and you think this fixture may work out all right for them as well? I think so. Very good. Shortly, Tom's going to be telling us all about the extraordinary performance of Messrs Mbappé, Icardi and co as PSG took apart Saint-Étienne. Uh, in the Coupe, is that right, Tom? Coupe de la Ligue. In the Coupe, oh, it was in the Coupe de la Ligue. Coupe de la Ligue quarterfinals. All right. And uh, also, we'll, we'll bang on about what Inter and Juve and all that lot got up to and other stuff as well. First of all, though, here's Ben with Nominative Determinism's Lee Price of Paddy Power. Thank you very much, Jimbo. Hello, listeners, and hello, Lee Price from Paddy Power. Lee, let's talk about the Premier League this weekend and the big games, none bigger, of course, than Bournemouth versus Watford. What's going to happen here, please? <laughs> yeah, it's unusual this season actually, but a game that could really decide something. It's still up for grabs relegation. Bournemouth just about the favourites here. They're six to four. Watford are seventeen to ten. They're two almost identical prices though. We're struggling to split the two teams here. The draws twenty three to ten. Watford are in red hot form at the minute, and I don't just mean their resurgent results. They've had a player sent off in each of their last three matches. It's eight to one, someone else sees red this time. Over to Selhurst Park then, where Arsenal are the visitors for Crystal Palace. Will Arteta get angry? Can Arsenal get something here? Hmm, I wouldn't be shouting about their chances here, but I'm sure Mikel Arteta will be. And we do make them favourites, to be fair. They're 5-6, to six, odds on to get the three points here. Crystal Palace, 3-1 to one at home. There's got to be a bit of value there. The draws, 13-5. And Wilf Saha, odds on to stay at Selhurst Park this month. But he's favourite to join Bayern Munich in the summer. Really? And finally, Lee, how many penalties are there going to be at Old Trafford when Norwich come to see Man U? <laughs> well, I'm not sure United will want the penalties, actually. Tim Krull saved two last time, as you mentioned. He's pretty good at these spot kicks, isn't he? For one or more penalty, it's 15-8. to eight. For two or more in this game, it's 15-2. to two. For three or more, it's 25-1. to one. For four or more, it's 100-1. to one, And obviously, incredibly unlikely. As for the game, United are 3-10 to 10 to win this one. They need to after a terrible midweek display. Norwich are 17-2. to two. They're nice to watch, but results haven't been going their way. The draw's 4-1. to one. You can find out those odds and more at paddypower.com or the Paddy Power app. Prices are accurate at the time. Recording is over 18 to only. Terms and conditions apply. And when the fun stops, stop. Euro News. Our Euro show is back on Tuesday morning, Tom. Monday morning, boom, it's up early. Our weekend roundup. Crack of dawn. And then Tuesday morning, similar time, the Euro show. Wasn't there this week. Everyone was on holiday. But we're here to talk about some of that crazy stuff. Crazy stuff like the Spanish Super Cup. What on earth is going on there? They're in Saudi Arabia. Oh, um, let's not even discuss it. Okay, let's not. Sport washing, isn't it? 
and also not only, but they've they've increased the Super Cup from two to fourteen. Well, it's because, 14 it's because it was because every now and again it's not Real Madrid Barcelona, and so they can't sell it. So by expanding the format, they managed to guarantee that it will basically always at least feature Barcelona and Real Madrid in the semi-finals. Right. Which, lo and behold, is what's happened this year. It's not often I use the term egregious, but I, I think there's no other option here, really. I mean, Super Cup semi-final. There aren't many more heinous forward combinations. Shit, I guess. All right, let's restore our faith in the game, Tom, with a bit of chat about PSG ass. <laughs> Yes, uh, PSG, who since just before Christmas have been playing with all four of their quatre fantastiques in the starting eleven. So that's Neymar, Mbappe, Di Maria and Icardi. Oh. Uh, Thomas Tuchel has been trying to fit the four of them into into the uh, the same starting eleven pretty much since the start of the season. Appears to have settled on uh, a formula that works. Uh, they've been scoring goals for fun over the last few weeks. They beat Saint-Étienne 6-1 in the Coupe de la Ligue quarterfinals last night. Hat-trick for Icardi, uh, his first for PSG. He's now on 17 goals for the season in 19 games. One for Mbappe, one for Neymar and one calamitous own goal, which was a cross came in, a defender clears it against another defender. The ball hits the post and then bounces in off the unfortunate Jesse Moulin, Saint-Étienne goalkeeper for an own goal. Speaking of whom, as a postscript, when uh, Jesse Moulin returned home last night, Slightly crest yeah, he fallen. was red in the face. I'm sure he. I'm <laughs> sure he was. He found a heartwarming message, handwritten message from his kids that had been stuck to a wall or a door in his house, and it said, "You are the best, Daddy. We love you very much. You did your best. Not everyone would have gone in goal. You were the best in my eyes." And so how, how do we know that? Did he, he put, post he that? He put it on Instagram. I mean, just to try and you know raise his spirits. Together. Duncan's already shredded that on Twitter, so. The goal that wasn't scored was almost the most interesting thing. Yes, I mean, it ended up being the biggest talking point of the night. PSG are already cantering to this very comfortable victory. uh, And I think it's Di Maria puts the ball towards the centre of the pitch from the left. Neymar steps over it. And then Mbappe attempts a first-time Rabona from about 20 yards out, which curls about two feet wide of the goal. So that's basically the level that PSG are at currently, is that not only are they scoring six goals, they're playing absolute fantasy football those four are are really enjoying linking up and and the big question about it is is that system well drilled enough that they will use that against Borussia Dortmund in the Champions League because it's all well and good putting six goals past Claude Puel Saint-Étienne another matter entirely doing it in the Champions League and the suspicion is that they'll end up dropping one of those players for an extra midfielder but it it looks to be working and and I think Tuchel has managed to convince particularly Neymar and Di Maria the wide players that if they want to play in that quartet and they all clearly do they have to put a shift in and Neymar in fairness to him over the last month has been been exemplary in terms of defensive work and in terms of what he's been doing at the end of the pitch as well. PSG have uh, Monaco in a big game on uh, Sunday. Big game's coming up in Serie A, where it is Roma-Juventus this weekend, while Inter take on Atalanta. My word. As you probably know, right now, it's Inter and Juve neck and neck at the top of uh, Serie A. This uh, Monday, it was Sunday night, I was getting all excited about the fixtures coming up on, on Monday, particularly about Ibrahimovic, who came on... In the second half of Milan's game against Sampdoria, did he? Mm. Right, it was a really, it was a desperate game. You know what I've always said about the Italian title race? Not what not, have you not said? Enough Ashley Young. <laughs> right. Well, well, Jack. A, a lot of interest in the fact that Inter supposedly looking to bring Ashley Young to San Siro, 
And so a lot of people be bewildered by that. I must admit, it's not not something I can claim to particularly under. I'm not understand, but you know, I don't see why not. Bit of backup. I'm not sure. Uh, let's see. But apparently, Man United may be offering him a new deal well, anyway. This is the breaking news this morning. I mean, the breaking news last night was wow. Man United have found someone who are prepared to buy Ashley Young. Right. You know what a completely unexpected stroke of luck. And then this morning, the news is United trying to keep him apparently by offering him a one-year contract. And of all the confusing decisions that the United hierarchy have made in recent seasons, <laughs> trying to fend off an offer for 34-year-old Ashley Young might be the one that United fans struggle to get their heads around the most. Right. I mean, it bears mentioning that Inter previously took uh, both uh, Alexis Sanchez and Romelu Lukaku off United's hands. And Lukaku has been an absolute revelation. 14 goals so far this season. Uh, was brilliant in their victory on Monday away in Naples, where they were 3-1 winners. First time they'd won at San Paolo since 1997. Particularly, I think it was the first goal when he and um, uh, Lautaro were on the break and he's bombing upfield and he, he motions Lautaro to just drift away and pulls the two central defenders with him and then unleashes this thunderbolt which destroys Merritt. It's almost like he wasn't the problem at Manchester United, <laughs> don't I? Anyway, so Inter are level with Juve. Juve had a similarly big result on Monday. They beat Cagliari 4-0. Cristiano Ronaldo with a hat-trick, uh, which was the second most interesting thing about his uh, afternoon, if you were. Well, the top knot, yeah, but also the fact that people got really excited. He was sporting an iPod shuffle and wired headphones. iPod shuffle, Jack. Really? Yeah, it's a little square thing that you you could fit maybe 15 I mean, songs if it was on. a mini display, I'd be more impressed, but that's, uh, that's pretty hipster. Anyway, so Juve are away at Roma. on That's on Saturday, actually, while Inter on Sunday night take on Atalanta. This is going to be absolutely huge. Must-watch game. Atalanta, if you've seen them this season, I'm sure you've enjoyed watching them play. They're on fire at the moment. They beat Milan 5-0 just before the Christmas break and then came back with a 5-0 win over Parma uh, among the goals. A brilliant one from Papa Gomez, as usual, and a wonderful volley from uh, Ilicic. That whole game was like a goal-of-the-season competition, wasn't it? <laughs> because uh, Robin Goosen's goal was yeah, pretty that nice, was nice as well. As well. Excellent. That is it then for today's edition of the Totally Football Show. Thank you so much for being with us, listener. And you, Jack Lang. Cheers, James. Thank you, Tom Williams. A pleasure. And many thanks to Duncan Alexander for being with us. Grazie. Remember, our weekend roundup will be with you from just after midnight, probably, on Monday morning. So no need to wait for Monday evening to hear all our clever thoughts about what goes down around the fields of the Premier League and beyond. Brilliant. Have yourself a great weekend, listener. We'll catch up with you soon. You've been listening to The Totally Football Show, a Muddy Knees Media production. For sales and advertising, please email sales at muddykneesmedia.com. Keep up to date with everything across our Totally Football network at The Totally Show on Twitter. And make sure you check out our brand new website too, thetotallyfootballshow.com. Join Ruby Walsh, Paddy Power, Tom Nugent and a whole host of great guests each week on Paddy Power's new racing podcast, From the Horse's Mouth. Tune in for analysis, interviews and a bit of crack from the greatest trio since the Bee Gees. Ha, 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 ha. From the Horse's Mouth. From the Horse's Mouth. Ha, ha, yeah. Muddy Knees. Media.